then what that means is is that it's it's crossing the pole and it's unsynchronous in the sense that it crosses the equator at the same local solar time every every time so every time it so we might if it crosses over australia at 10:30 in the morning by the time it's gone around and and crossed south america it's also 10:30 in the morning at that local time and this is designed in a way to really achieve then the optimal coverage so we get a global picture the design of the orbits is is completely respected of, of the cloud and so like i said cloud screening techniques are required to try and isolate where where cloud is in Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today on the podcast, we're talking about monitoring the Earth's atmosphere using satellites. And more specifically, we're talking about using satellites to monitor atmospheric pollutants. And because I myself am not a atmospheric scientist, I found one for you. I found someone who can help us understand this rather complex topic. So my guest today is Mark Parrington. Mark is a senior scientist at the Copernicus Atmospheric Monitoring Service. And today on the podcast, you'll discover that monitoring atmospheric pollutants using satellites is really, really hard. But of course, there's more to it than that. You'll also learn about the kinds of things Mark is looking for, the kinds of atmospheric pollutants which are important and worth monitoring. And of course, some of the outcomes of this monitoring activity. So in other words, what these data sets can be used for. Before we get started today, I want to point you towards an initiative between GeoAwesomeness and Up42. Together, these two organizations are creating something called the EO Hub, so the Earth Observation Hub. It's hosted on GeoAwesomeness. There'll be a link to it in the show notes of this episode. But if you search for GeoAwesomeness slash EO Hub, you, you'll find it as well. And the Earth Observation Hub is a collection of resources focused on, you guessed it, Earth Observation. So at the moment, you can filter these resources by data source, spatial resolution, data type, sector, technology. But this is constantly evolving. It'll be well worth stopping by to check it out. Again, GeoAwesomeness, Earth Observation Hub. There'll be a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. You are a senior scientist at the Copernicus Atmospheric Monitoring Service. That is a long title. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other things we could put around that title, but, but let's run with this for the time being. So I'm looking forward to talking with you today about monitoring the atmosphere, what you're monitoring in the atmosphere, and how you're doing that. But I think first, would you mind just introducing yourself to the audience, please? How did you get involved in this atmospheric monitoring service? Hi, Daniel. Yeah, that's right. As you said, my name is, is Mark Parrington, and I'm a, a senior scientist in um, what we more succinctly call CAMS. And, and this is an operational service run by the European Union and is hosted by the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts. So I've been working in this position now for almost 10 years, and I come from a background of doing a physics degree at undergraduate and then atmospheric physics, PhD, looking at satellite observations of, of the atmosphere and atmospheric composition, and then a few more years of scientific research applying satellite observations of the atmosphere with models to try and understand processes in terms of atmospheric composition, air pollution, and, and atmospheric chemistry. So back in my university days, I remember saying to the lecturer that was in charge of the Earth Observation Remote Sensing courses that I was doing that, I, I really want to try and measure atmospheric pollution. And he literally looked at me and rolled his eyes and said, choose something else. And I think it was because it was really, really difficult. Is this as difficult as what I might think it is? In, in some ways it is, yes. I think it's not so straightforward as looking at, say, visible imagery which is more akin to a photograph and you you get 
what you see or what the satellite sensor sees to monitor or to observe atmospheric composition or molecules basically in the atmosphere, you need to be able to measure and understand and model the the radiative transfer, so how the electromagnetic radiation at different wavelengths interacts with molecules, and that's what the satellite is measuring. And then from that measurement, you need to reverse that process to then work out how many molecules of a particular gas or particular pollutant there are in the atmosphere. And as we'll discuss, depending on the um, the geometry of the observation and how you make the observation, makes that more or less challenging than in other circumstances. But the key thing is that it, there's, there's a lot of prior information that's needed in an understanding of the atmosphere in the first place to be able to interpret what the satellite actually measures and then get out of that some data set which is representative of what the composition of the atmosphere looks like. Whew, okay, yep. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of follow-up questions to ask around that. But I think maybe we should start with these satellite platforms. From a previous conversation, I, kn- I know that there's kind of two maybe different platforms or at least different geometries of satellites we, we can use to, to do this kind of work. Would you mind starting with, with the idea of, of limb sounding? What is that? Yeah, sure. So, so limb sounding is, is kind of um, the, the orthogonal view, if you like. So this is looking where Nadia is viewing vertically downwards. The Nadia is looking at kind of a 90 degree angle to that and looking at the bit of the atmosphere that sticks up above the, the horizon, if you like. So you've got the surface of the Earth, this very thin layer of atmosphere. And a limb viewing uh, geometry means that the sensor is pointing at, at the atmosphere in the limb. And then depending on the, the type of measurement, whether it's uh, thermal emission at different wavelengths and using the space in the background as like a calibration, as a, as a cold calibration, the limb view can then extract additional information in terms of the vertical uh, distribution of, of pollutants in the atmosphere. Okay, so a couple of questions here. Is this the same sensor that we're using when we, when we think about looking like vertically down at the Earth as what we're using when we're looking across? So in, in some cases, the sensor, is very, the, the sensor for atmospheric composition particularly could be very similar. And the only thing that's changing is that the physics of the measurement is a little bit different just because of the, the way the sensor is being pointed. But essentially, they could be measuring the same kind of thing. So for example, in my background, in my PhD, I was looking at infrared wavelengths um, using limb sounders. And that infrared measurement is essentially the same, whether it's limb viewing or nadir viewing. The only difference being is that in the limb view, the atmosphere is warm relative to the space behind it. Whereas in the nadir view, it's, it's really just relying on the thermal infrared emission of, of molecules um, in, in the, the column of the atmosphere. This might be a, a really naive, silly question. But when you look at the limb, is the sensor stable or is it moving up and down that, that column, sort of making different measurements depending on, on where it's looking in the column? Or does it look in the entire column at once? So, so in the, the traditional satellites that were looking in the limb, they would scan up and down as, as the satellite was moving in, through its orbit. So it would, there would be some means of trying to extract actual vertical measurements at different levels in the atmosphere. So this would be, this is, this was thought of as like a tangent height because it's essentially, if you draw a line from the sensor to the, the bit of the atmosphere you're looking at, and you can think of the atmosphere as a sphere, if you like. So different, different levels where the limb viewing observation is coming from is from the, the tangent point of where the, the line of sight intersects with the, the, the level of the atmosphere that you're looking at. So when Earth observation was first 
being developed for, for atmospheric composition back in the 70s. This was mostly limb sounding was what people were looking at because they were looking at the ozone layer. In recent years, there hasn't been any new limb sounders launched for, that are on satellites. And so we're, we're at a point where the, the existing limb sounders are already well past the, their expected lifetime. So the, the, the most, the newest one, if you like, of those is the microwave limb sounder, which is on the NASA Aura satellite. And that was launched in uh, July 2004. So we, do, we don't have any new limb sounders since then. However, there will be, there are plans to launch limb sounders again in the, in the coming years, which will then help to maintain the, the level of understanding and monitoring of things like the ozone layer and how the stratosphere is changing in terms of atmospheric chemistry, which is, which is very important. And which when we lose that last limb sounders, we, we, we will lose some information and some quality of, of our understanding there. Okay. And, and that can't be replaced by more, better, faster nadir sensors. Yeah, so Nadia just doesn't have, they just don't get, you just don't get the vertical resolution. You can extract information on the vertical distribution by looking at slightly different wavelengths with Nadia viewing, but with a limb sounder, you get much higher vertical coverage. And so you get much clearer picture of the stratosphere. And this is important because as you go from the troposphere up in altitude into the stratosphere, the, the gradients in things like ozone, the concentration gradients, are very sharp and so you really need as high a observational sampling as you can get. Okay, that, that makes sense. For both of these different platforms, are we talking about geostationary satellites? So in the case of limb viewing, these are most typically coming from low earth orbiting satellites just because they're, they're, they're much closer to the earth and get a much clearer view of the limb than, than you would get from a, a geostationary orbit. And I, I guess now that we understand a little bit more about the, the platforms that we're using to collect this data, it'd be really interesting to know, well, what can we see from these satellites? Like what, what kind of atmospheric measurements can you make? One of the key, key measurements that can be made is, is temperature and some, some information on actually the meteorology. And originally uh, satellites were being put into orbit to, to try and better understand the weather and to improve weather forecasting. And then in terms of atmospheric composition and atmospheric chemistry, one of the, the key atmospheric uh, components is ozone. And so I'm sure, or I hope that most people are familiar with the, the concept of the ozone layer and the Antarctic ozone hole that forms every, um, every spring in the Southern Hemisphere. And so ozone was, was known about with measurements from the ground for now nearly the last uh, 100 years or so. And that's, that was one of the, the main reasons that satellites were starting to measure, to measure the atmosphere in terms of composition. And so ozone is always one of, one of the key things because to have those measurements of the ozone layer and to understand how that's changing. But then secondary to that, because of how the interaction of different molecules with electromagnetic radiation in the atmosphere changes, you can then get information on other pollutants as well. So pollutants which are relevant for the ozone layer. So in the stratosphere, you have nitrogen dioxide, methane, water vapor. So those were probably some of the, the, main, the main ones. But then if you switch then to the nadir view, what we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years has been this real clear shift towards understanding actual atmospheric pollution. So smoke from wildfires, desert dust and things like this. And in that case, then you can get information on a, on a few more different pollutants, partly because there are more pollutants in, in the, the lower part of the atmosphere, but also because there are the sensors that are designed to measure those um, or to observe those directly. So carbon monoxide, for example, is a tracer of 
pollution and wildfire emissions. And the next big thing that's coming along is carbon dioxide. And there's a whole range of other species and uh, that are relevant for atmospheric chemistry in between. I guess I'd be curious to know what the lifetime of the, these pollutants are. Once they're in the atmosphere, I'm assuming that they change, they develop into different things, different, or perhaps their chemical construct changes. What is the lifetime? How long can you see this? If I admit some pollutants today, how long can, can, you, can you measure that in the atmosphere? So it really depends. I mean, if, if we're now just focusing on pollution that's coming from the surface and the lifetime of, of some of those, um, those pollutants and species, then it really depends. So, for example, some of the key species which are relevant for air quality, such as particulate matter and nitrogen dioxide, they usually have quite a short lifetime in the atmosphere because they're more chemically reactive or they, they are lost out of the atmosphere through different processes, such as rain or interacting with surfaces. And so in that case, you're looking at maybe a few days to a week. But then there are, as you say, there are some pollutants that once they get further away from the surface, the lifetime increases. So carbon monoxide, I mentioned because this, this is a, a key tracer for understanding where atmospheric pollution goes following emission. And in the troposphere, which is the lower part of the atmosphere, carbon monoxide has a, a typical lifetime of 30 or 40 days. And so it, it, it really persists and you can really see these plumes of um, pollution going between continents and um, around the world in some cases. Yeah, that was a, actually exactly my next question, because I'm assuming you can see the, these plumes, as you describe them, of pollution. What detail could we expect for, from these kinds of measurements? Can we see individual cities or is this on a, a country basis? How, what's the resolution of a, a plume of pollution that we, we might be able to see in, in your data? Okay, well, I mean, if we think about, first of all, the, 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 those shorter-lived pollutants like nitrogen dioxide, because they, they have a relatively short lifetime and they, so the, the higher signal is closer to those pollution sources, you can actually then start to pick out individual cities and individual places which, um, which are contributing the most emissions. So if we think roughly over the last uh, 15 to 20 years or so, the spatial resolution or the, the, the size of the field of view, if you like, of the, the sensor as it's looking at the surface has really um, improved quite dramatically. So for a long time, we were looking at roughly 10 kilometer kind of spatial scale. But then was it five years ago, almost um, the Sentinel-5P uh, satellite, which was launched by, by the, the Copernicus program, increased the resolution to something like five by seven kilometers. And this really in, improved how we see these pollution sources at the surface. So you get very clear information of where there is high NO2 or high pollution at that city scale. And in fact, if you aggregate then observations over several days or a month, then you, you, get, you then start to really see very clear patterns of where those uh, pollution sources are. That is really interesting. I had no idea that we could get that kind of resolution on atmospheric pollutants. A question that springs to mind now is, is what about cloud? What, what about things getting in the way of the, the sensor? So a lot of people live you know, closer to the equator than, than at the poles, for example. So I, I'm assuming a lot of these sources of anthropogenic pollution are, are coming from areas that are maybe under cloud from time to time. How, how does this affect your analysis? Can the sensors that we're talking about today distinguish between cloud and the pollutants they're, they're trying to sense, or can they not see through cloud at all? So cloud, cloud is a, a big limitation, really, on, on these observations, that in the presence of cloud, it's, it's very 
challenging to actually um, to make the measurement, particularly for, for nadir viewing sensors. If we think back to limb viewing just very briefly, those measurements are somewhat less affected by cloud because they're looking mostly at the stratosphere. They don't really see, they don't get a lot of information in, in the troposphere. Although there are some limb viewing sensors in the past, which did provide very useful information on, say, cirrus cloud in the upper troposphere over the equator where the, the tropopause is so much higher. But then in the nadir viewing, it, it starts to become a bit of a limitation. So one thing I haven't yet mentioned or I, I alluded to briefly was the, the fact that these sensors are measuring at, in different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. And cloud is a, is a big challenge in, in all of those parts of the spectrum because of water vapor in the cloud, but also just limiting the amount of radiation at different wavelengths that can then that is actually emitted or is actually scattered or reflected back in, into the space for the satellite to view. So, so yeah, there are often gaps in the observations just purely and simply because the, the instrument can't see the surface and it can't see through the cloud. So something has to be done to the data before it's provided in which they do some kind of cloud screening to, to remove the influence of cloud because the cloud can also influence the way the, the process of estimating the pollutants from, from the observations that are made by the satellite. So given some of these challenges around making observations and, and cloud being one of them, I'm sure there's a lot of other ones. I'm assuming that the orbits of these platforms take that into consideration. There must be some sort of consideration for the orbits that says, okay, well, if we go on this orbit, we'll get the best possible, potentially global coverage of these observations. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage to get global coverage and in, in perhaps the design of, of the orbits of these satellites? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so typically, uh, most of the satellite platforms that we're using data from are in so-called low Earth orbiting um, orbits. And what that means is, is that it's, it's crossing the pole and it's unsynchronous in the sense that it crosses the equator at the same local solar time every, every time. So every time, it, so it might, if it crosses over Australia at 10.30 in the morning, by the time it's gone around and, and crossed South America, it's also 10.30 in the morning at that local time. And this is designed in a way to really achieve then the optimal coverage so we get a global picture. The design of the orbits is, is completely respected of, of the cloud. And so, like I said, cloud screening techniques are required to try and isolate where, where cloud is in, in the observations and to try and have a clear, clear sky view in, in most cases. But what the, one of the limitations of the low Earth orbit is you're observing roughly the same time in the same location every day. So you're not, you're not seeing the full daily picture of, of what's going on, but you're getting then the full global coverage because the orbits repeat and you get, you get fairly full global coverage within a few days. Although with the, with the Sentinel-5P satellite, actually it's full global coverage in more or less one day just due to the, the width of the swath that's, that's looking at the, the surface as, as the satellite's orbiting. Okay, so, so if I understand this correctly, cloud is, is, is a big problem. We do this cloud screening to try and re remove the effects of that under the areas that, or in the, in the observations that we're making. But also we have this other problem in terms of getting a global consistent coverage. And that problem might be time. You mentioned that it's all, you're making the observations at the same time, at the same geographic area, you know, every day. So for me, this seems, it seems like we're going to have these sort of gaps spatially in our observations and, and temporally as well. How do you go about filling in some of those gaps? 
Yeah, so this is right. There, there will be gaps between orbits and there will be gaps in the other parts of the day where the, the satellite's not observing. So in the past, over the last 20 years or so, there's been a few different approaches to try and to, to fill in those gaps from a, an observation, from a satellite point of view. And so NASA had a concept called the A-Train in which they flew several satellites along the same orbit path. So they all passed the each geographical area at, at slightly different times, but all following each other. So they were all more or less measuring the same, the same kind of area in, in a short period of time. Another approach would be to have like twin instruments or twin satellites or one with a morning crossing time and one with an afternoon crossing time to try and fill in those gaps. And that is, that is in fact what he's done with, with some, some satellites. So for example, NASA has two what are now very, very old uh, satellites called, called Terra and Aqua, which have now been flying since, uh, well, 1999. Terra was launched in December 1999. And that's in the morning over past time. And the Aqua satellite is in an afternoon over past time. And they have some instruments which are the, more or less the same instrument on, on each satellite. So they start to fill in some of these gaps. There are, of course, in situ platforms uh, such as aircraft, balloons. They provide very detailed measurements, but usually they're quite limited geographically and they're not flying all the time. And so you're not getting, getting the full picture. But one of the new developments or something that's already online or coming online very quickly is the, the concept of making atmospheric composition and atmospheric pollution observations from geostationary satellites. Okay, and, and what will that mean? So geostationary satellites, there'll be a constant view of a certain geographic area, so maybe full coverage of that area all, all the time. Is, is that correct? Yes, yeah, so ge geostationary means that it, it stays in the same location of the equator, and because the orbital period is the same as the rotation of the Earth, then it, it stays in the same place over, over the Earth's surface. And one of the challenges is that the, the orbit height is much, much more, it's 30-odd thousand kilometers compared to seven or 800 kilometers of a, a low-Earth orbiting satellite. And so the challenge has always been able to get the, the, the right degree of signal-to-noise to be able to extract information on atmospheric pollutants from sensors such a long way away. But there is already a satellite which was launched by South Korea a couple of years ago, which is focused on the part of East Asia and could also cover parts of um, Australia, New Zealand, as well as the, the tropical region in between. And the next, the next stages of that is to add in what you would consider as a, a constellation. So like you say, geostationary is only one location, so it doesn't fill in the rest of the gaps around the world. But the Copernicus program will launch in the next year or so a, a geostationary platform for, for looking at the European North African region. And NASA will also launch a mission also in the similar kind of time frame to look at North and Central and South America. So there will be, at least the main land masses will mostly be covered by a geo geostationary constellation. So I know that, that CAMS plays a role in filling in these gaps. I know that you have some sort of model somewhere that, that you run to help sort of fill in the gaps in the observations that we're talking about to maybe overcome some of these challenges in terms of making observations. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Of course, yeah. So, so in CAMS, what we're doing is taking these observations from satellites or of atmospheric composition, and then we're combining or, well, the process we call is, is data assimilation, which means we combine those satellite observations with a numerical model, a numerical model of, of the global atmosphere. So basically, we're, we're using what is a, a weather forecast model, which is the, the ECMWF model. Into that model, we include all the 
the chemical processes and tendencies and sources and sinks that we know about. Some of them are, are observable, some of them are parameterized. And we then use the satellite observations to to basically initialize forecasts of, of atmospheric pollution. So it's a, a global forecast similar to a weather forecast, but actually for atmospheric pollution. And we're using then all the available satellite observations we can, we can get hold of, not just for atmospheric composition, but also for the weather. And this is one of the, the key successes of weather forecasting is having global satellite observations to be able to give the optimal initial conditions to run a forecast from. So whether that's in terms of the weather or, or in terms of atmospheric pollution as well. And the advantage of, of doing this process means that any gaps in the observations due to cloud or orbital coverage, like, like we discussed, those can be filled in because the model will fill in the gaps between the observations because it knows what has already been observed, but then also it has its own understanding of the atmospheric processes in terms of chemistry and transport and everything to sort of fill in, fill in those gaps. But also because not all of the sensors that are making the measurements are equal, they're not all measuring in exactly the same thing in exactly the same way. We can also take that into account to put everything into this consistent framework so we have a, a very clear understanding of the full distribution of atmospheric pollutants with information coming from measurements that are made in the infrared or made in the ultraviolet. And they all have different sensitivities to, to the atmosphere and the location of the pollutants in the atmosphere. How do you ground truth the, the output of, of something like that? This is one of the, the, the key things that we do is this ground truthing and validation of the assimilated products. So what actually comes out of the model. So we do this in a, in a routine basis. Every three months, we produce reports which compare things like ozone, carbon monoxide, particulate matter, aerosols, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, um, and that even now greenhouse gases where all of the available independent either measurements made at the ground or measurements made by aircraft or balloons or by other remote sensing um, instrumentation, which, which we don't assimilate in the model, to then really understand where the, the output from our model stands relative to an in-situ view or a, a more direct view of, of atmospheric pollution. It sounds like you've almost got like a, a sleigh that you have to uphold or, or live up to in, in terms of we, we deliver this product, the service, and and here is our service level agreement that we do this every every quarter. I think you said we, we test and validate and produce these these reports. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So each validation report covers the, the previous quarter and it just really brings together all the possible observations and all the possible measurements which could verify and validate what our forecasts show, just to show that we have we can trust what our data that we produce is is showing and to show that you know, it's, it's, it's useful and usable for monitoring the atmosphere and understanding these uh, pollution episodes that could cover a wide range of things from anthropogenic pollution to fires, uh, forest fires, and also to dust storms. So it's, it's an essential part of what we do is verifying and validating the products. And actually, in my, in my day-to-day -day work, this is, this is something I'm doing, is looking at what the actual forecast from today is showing around the world and trying to identify is this is this something that's useful for people and to try and bring together anything that's available from measurements but also things like social media to try and understand 
this fire in California, for example, you can get information from people on the ground, as well as uh, whatever measurements are there and, and available in near real time to then really be able to say, we've got this forecast today, and this is what it's showing. And this is, we know that it's showing the right kind of thing, because we can compare it with XYZ to show that it's 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 showing what what's really being experienced. And so, so I guess that the the next question has to be like, what what do you see people doing with, with this data? You're producing this amazing data set. You're you're ground truthing it. You're testing it. You're producing reports. You know, showing people that yes, this is useful. This is data that you can trust. But what do you see people doing with this data set? What applications are they building on top of it? Or do you have any examples of, of use cases? So the user uptake, this is a really uh, an essential part of what we do and, and why we're doing it. And the whole or one of the main premises of the Copernicus program, which is a much bigger thing than and, than just CAMS, where, where I work, is that it's uh, providing, well, satellite observations for, for various things, not just the atmosphere, also the, the land surface and the oceans and, and, and climate parameters in general. But then also these uh, services, or CAMS is one of six services, which is providing then information on specific themes, so the atmosphere, land, ocean, climate, change and but also for emergency management and the crux of all of this is that the the data is all completely open access and freely available so this is a little bit of a tangent to to what you're asking but basically the point is that that users are important because we need to make sure that, that there is uptake of the data and so all that validation all of the stuff that i've talked about so far this is really just to, to show then potential users that that the data is there and that it's useful and, it, and it's usable and we already have various uh, users and downstream applications of the data, which are basically getting this information to uh, as many people as possible, either in, indirectly just as, as, as they would receive a weather forecast. So there's various apps that show our atmospheric pollution forecasts and like through mobile phone apps and, and give, you a, give people a different perspective on, on the data. But then also there are various businesses and business users and case user cases which are using the data for a wide range of applications. So things like solar energy production rely on the knowing the amount of aerosol that's in the atmosphere that could attenuate the amount of sunlight reaching the a solar farm, but also the deposition of dust to that solar farm, which would mean that the solar panels need cleaning so that that's information they can have up to a, a few days in advance from our forecasts. There's been uh, use cases from the aviation industry, for example, looking at how dust and particulate matter in the atmosphere could impact on jet engine maintenance. And then there's, there's various other users who are looking at our fire emissions data, for example, to understand the impacts of fire on air pollution in, in different parts of the world. Is there a world where people could use this to monitor how much uh, pollution a, a factory or an industry w was emitting? And I'm thinking now about carbon credits as an example. So we're not at that stage currently. Um, one of the, the, the key things of our data is in terms of the emissions from industrial processes and human activities, these are based on inventories which are compiled from reported data so they're, they're very accurate based on those reported data but they're not near real time so that we, we we don't always know exactly based on that individual pollution sources it's very difficult to um, to understand because we're not observing them we're basing it on information that we received from historically reported data this is different in terms of things like wildfires and dust storms where we for fires we are observing 
biolocations and the intensity and so we can really understand the emissions of, of something like these natural events which and their direct impact on the atmosphere. So at the current state of play is that we're not at that level of being able to understand individual point sources from industrial emissions, for example. However, the, the next evolution of the Copernicus program in terms of monitoring the, the, the atmosphere is to start to look at carbon dioxide monitoring. And there will be a whole service developed, which is in the prototype stages of using satellite observations and you going through the pretty, pretty much the same process that I've already described to then be able to monitor and understand emissions from point sources such as power stations or mining or road traffic or, or different, different activities at the surface. Is it also important to be able to tease apart like what sources come from anthropogenic use cases or anthropogenic sources and what are naturally occurring or come from, from natural systems? Can you tease apart those two sources? I mean, currently, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge to do that. We know, so, so based on our, the, our operational way of working, it's not always that clear. You can usually see, so if there's a big fire or something, you see carbon monoxide plume, and then you can trace that back and understand where it came from. And that would be distinct from anthropogenic emissions from big cities or from you know, large industrial regions. There are potentially things that we can do with the model. So because we're running a model, we can we could potentially play around with bits of it and add in or take out emissions to understand what that would mean in terms of changing, changing the atmosphere. And that's not something we really do because that's more of a, a research question. So yeah, so we're not, we're not yeah, at that stage, but I think we're, we're moving towards having a, a, a more complete monitoring system where we can actually use the process of inverse modeling. So that's basically running the model backwards in time, using the observations to then understand where pollution in the atmosphere came from and understand what that means in terms of what we thought we knew about the emissions and, and what's actually what we actually think is the emission based on what the observations of the atmosphere tell us. So at some point in the future, we will be able to better disentangle pollution sources from, from different polluters at, at the surface, but we're, we're still not quite there yet. So I got to tell you, this sounds incredibly complicated. <laughs> You've done this amazing job of sort of walking us through the processes. At the start, we talked about the different platforms, the different ways of sort of collecting this data, the observations, how we fill in the gaps and in the observations that, that we're making from the platforms. You talked about some of the use cases here as well. And again, it sounds incredibly complicated. If, if, I, if I had a magic wand, I could wave that wand and take away one problem, solve one problem for you today in terms of doing your work with this kind of data. And creating the outputs that, that, that you're creating, what, what would that one problem be? What would be first on the list? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I think, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of elements that are, are, are still quite challenging to these observations and using them and to, to providing the kind of data that we do. One of those may, may well be the, the spatial resolution. So the spatial resolution of some of the observations we're using is, is much better than others. And also in, in improving how we have a, a more complete picture of observations and um, throughout the, the daily cycle around the world. So some of the, some of the things that we talked about will address uh, some of these limitations and will start to, to fill in those gaps. So certainly as satellite technology and sensor technology improves, we get better um, spatial resolution and um, we get much better, um, a much better view of, of what's going on in the atmosphere. 
so I, I would say that that's probably one still one of the main um, the main challenges that we face. We're already in a position where we're starting to get the the, the things that we need. So geostationary satellites, I, I expect, will make a big change to how we observe and how we understand and how the atmosphere is changing at, at the global scale. The launch of Sentinel Five P, just to to step back a little bit again, that was already from their very first observations that were made available, that already changed the game in, in how we monitor and understood atmospheric pollution. And I expect with the geostationary, we'll, we, we could well see a, a very similar shift. Well, Mark, I think this is probably a great point to round off the conversation and say thank you very much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Before I let you go, though, where can people go if they want to reach out to you, learn more about your work, or perhaps look at some of this data that you're, that you're creating in CAMS? So, yeah, so the, the main... The main website for, for CAMS is atmosphere.copernicus.eu. And we also have quite active social media channels. So on Twitter, at CopernicusECMWF contains all the, a lot of information about CAMS, but also um, the climate change service that we run. And on my Twitter feed, I can be found as M underscore Parrington, where I try to post um, information on, on fire emissions and what that means in terms of atmospheric pollution but also any other kind of atmospheric pollution that, that we see around the world and that we monitor. Thanks again, Mark. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Mark. There will be a bunch of links in the show notes today. Firstly, of course, I'll link to the Earth Observation Hub hosted on GeoAwesomeness. This is a partnership between GeoAwesomeness and Up42. And the idea is to create a really valuable resource for people that are interested in Earth observation. So it's a constantly evolving thing and it's worth checking out. There'll be a link to that in the show notes of this episode. During the interview itself, uh, Mark mentioned a couple of of interesting resources that that I will link to. So if you want to know more about Mark's work, you'll find those in the show notes. I think it's also worth mentioning that there's a huge backlog of episodes now that focus on Earth observation. So it's worth trolling back through those and and just seeing if anything catches your eye. A couple of episodes that are not directly related to atmospheric science, but you might find interesting are the Landsat program, how to keep your satellite pointing at Earth. And one of my favorite Earth observation episodes is called Fake Satellite Imagery. But you don't have to remember all this. I will put links to them in the show notes of this episode. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. I I really appreciate it. I'll be back again next week. I hope that you'll take the time to join me then. In the meantime, if you want to reach out to me for whatever reason, the best place to go is mapscaping.com. I work with a bunch of really talented freelancers that are creating detailed show notes about each and every podcast episode. And they're also helping me create articles that support each episode. So there's a bunch of interesting information there. It's growing all the time. And that if you want to reach out to me for whatever reason, that would be a great place to start. Okay, that's it from me. We'll see you again next week. Bye.